0: I've never boarded a dog before. And oh, so me I'm having all of these like I don't know, like anxiety like do I pick wh- where do I go? Who do I trust? What's a good price? The price doesn't really matter, but like who's going to take care of my mm-hmm. my baby? And also the fact that He's a giant asshole who hates all other dogs. He is. He
1: absolutely is. Where
0: can I take him?
1: Yeah, I've been looking at... So I was like, okay, basically, I have like three options. You know, taking Max to uh, like a boarding place or to someone's house... There's the having someone come just stay at my place and, like, take care of Max, which makes me super uncomfortable because I'm like, I don't want a stranger sleeping in my bed. Yeah. Or the third option of just, like, paying for walks and having someone come, like, three times a day, which is expensive. And I'm like, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Charlie, we'll, we'll figure it out, but with you and I both having travel coming up and the fact that we no longer live in the same city and can't each be each other's dog sitter I know I was frustrating. I
1: called you out at work today. I was like, and Brittany had to go on and move, so she (laughs) can't watch Max.
0: Uh trust me, I'm feeling that like today when I found out I've got a work trip coming up, I was like, shit. And also, you know what's gonna suck? Because I'm literally because I think the weekend I'm going to visit you in Austin, I could be leaving that next Monday. And I'm like, should I just, like, leave Charlie with you? But no, because then I would have to go I it. I really
1: wish you wouldn't.
0: <laughs> I won't do that. Um, well, hey, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany.
1: And I'm Tyler.
0: And we're trying to figure out how to be real dog parents.
1: I know. I just... I almost... I mean, I don't, but I almost... as a tiny part of it. almost does feel like... This could be easier with kids because you actually can take them places, even though like it sucks children screaming on planes. I feel <laughs> so much for those parents. I'm like, it, can I do anything for you? But I
0: mean, maybe you can like actually ask them that instead of sitting there just thinking about maybe you could be nice yeah, and ask except that. Except
1: how uncomfortable would that be if you like imagine if you I were somewhere. I mean, you're somewhere... not going
0: up to them and you're like. Can I help you with your kid?
1: Okay, no, 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 But picture this. Picture with Charlie. If you are just sitting somewhere, Charlie is screaming in your lap, and someone came up, some stranger, and was like, hey, is there anything I can do for your dog? You'd be like, I'm so sorry, I feel even guiltier.
0: <laughs> okay, but it was your tone. It's your tone. You go up to them and you're like, Hey, is there anything I can get you? Do you need... Do you need a drink? Just kidding.
1: <laughs> do you need a drink? Do you need some sedatives? I'm sure we can find them. I have Benadryl.
0: Is there a doctor on board? We need something stronger.
1: Oh god, doctors. No? No. <laughs> oh god (laughs) Um,
0: like how i slipped that in
1: (laughs) i kind of um Um, but yeah anyways um sedate yourselves when you fly
0: (laughs) (laughs) then you don't can't hear the kids or the dogs
1: it's yeah i sedate myself when i fly
0: if i am flying overseas you betcha i'm taking i'm taking sleeping pills with some wine and i'm (laughs) out
1: (laughs) yeah um, first off, don't take sleeping pills and alcohol together. I am going to pretend that you meant Benadryl. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, Z-Quil. Dude, it's, like, it's fine.
1: It's the exact same thing as Benadryl. They're both diphenhydramine. Like, like well, it's the same thing.
0: Well, I like it as Z-Quil.
1: Oh, I mean, okay. That's, you do you. Um, <laughs> I one time was on a plane coming from, uh, London to Dallas um, super dark. It was, uh, for our grandmother's funeral. And I told that to the lady sitting next to me. She was really nice. She, um, bought me drinks during the flight. I had quite a few drinks. And then she was like, here, take this. It'll help you sleep. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Six drinks in, maybe. It was a long <laughs> God, flight.
0: God, um, that's, you, no. And then
1: she was like, here, just take this. And I was like, Okay. And I took it, and then the next thing I remember is wheels on the ground. I woke up, like, (gasps) (laughs) so I'm, like, I'm, like, 70% sure that, like, you know, I did die for a little bit on the plane, but, you know, I needed it, so, yeah, don't take uh, pills from strangers (laughs) on airplanes, or do, I mean, if you want to be risky, just do it.
0: Don't take pills from strangers anywhere anywhere
1: okay how many of you would say your doctor is someone who isn't a stranger (laughs) (laughs) are they gonna be like oh here's a prescription and you're gonna be like tammy i don't know you okay i don't know you
0: i don't know you steve's not here steve's your regular doctor so i can't i can't take the. i'll deal with the pain i'll be fine i'll be fine ma'am you have a broken ankle i'll be fine
1: (laughs) and she'll be like Okay, why did you come here? Bye. <laughs>
0: just wasted my time. In the best of cases. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Basically. Anyways, um, with that, um, with that knowledge of don't <laughs> take pills from strangers, um, yes. let's jump into Patreon. Yes. Um, so, you know, we mention it in every episode, but I just want to let y'all know that you need to go ahead and check out our Patreon if you haven't done so already. We have a bunch of just awesome shit on there from our murder mini episodes to like two recipes to just different fun stuff. We also have our year in review series that we did for New Year's, the end of 2018, where we looked back at all the cases we'd done in the previous year, talked about our, I guess, favorite parts of them. I don't know, talked about the cases, reviewed them. It was a year in review.
0: If you want to see us look super awkward on camera, that oh, those yeah, are because videos. Oh, yeah, we filmed
1: it. Yeah, it's, they're videos where we <laughs> sure uh, just check sit those there out. in my old uh, dining room and talk yeah. about it.
0: Did you know that uh, the same types of conversations, it's, it's a little bit different when you're on a video and have to, like, I don't know, keep looking at the screen or something or at the yeah. wall or I don't even know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there are a couple times than that that if you muted it and just looked at my face, you'd be like, Is he dead inside? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes.
0: Um, um Well <laughs> You're not. You're not dead inside. If you've already checked out Patreon, thank you. We love you. Glad yes. you have you as members. But also along with Patreon, be sure to subscribe. We have new episodes that come out every Tuesday. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. And um, yeah, so be sure to click that subscribe button, click below, and you won't miss a thing.
1: Also, um, I'm just going to jump forward into current news.
0: Yeah, what's going on? You told me earlier you had something you wanted to talk about.
1: So <laughs> I this... just made that
0: sound like we had to have a car. You just told me there's something that we needed to Are talk you... about. <laughs>
1: we need to talk. Um,
0: <laughs> I don't. I threw I don't a meeting like on
1: that. our calendar at 2.30. <laughs> Please see me at my desk.
0: <laughs> Shit.
1: So shifting gears to something much darker. Oh. The murder of James Bird Jr. So James was a 49 year old black man who was mm-hmm. killed in Jasper, Texas in 98. But it was like. One of the most fucked up and brutal murders I've ever heard of. What happened? I'm pretty sure that I did this case in a murder mini. I can't remember if I really wanted to do it or actually did it. Right. But he was basically chained to the back of this truck and dragged for nearly three miles down the road. Oh
0: my god.
1: And he was alive for at least two miles of it oh
0: my god.
1: Before he was decapitated by a um like a drain culvert. Right. Like those metal, big old metal like pipes for drainage on the side of roads. Yeah. Yeah. So one of his killers, John William King, who did this because he's just super fucking racist. He's openly racist, has a bunch of really offensive tattoos. Like there's one of a black man hanging on him. He's that fucking monster but he was actually executed just a couple days ago
0: did they catch him like shortly after this happened yeah
1: yeah so he was on death row for
0: like 20 years
1: yeah thereabouts but yeah wow so super fucked up um state of texas executed him uh yeah
0: and just because he was racist that was his reasoning yeah that's not a fucking reason
1: no he was trash
0: what a garbage human yep I'm not going to say, like, glad he's executed, because, I don't whatever. But glad he's been in prison for a while and got off the streets.
1: Yeah, Uh uh-huh. Same.
0: Um, Well, my current news is not as dark as that. So we have talked about this in the past, but the Ted Bundy movie, the extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile movie. Yeah. I I can't remember if we mentioned this, but, like, a few months ago, Netflix picked it up, and that's where it was going to be released. But... You know, we heard it's gonna be a later this year. Blah bloody blah dee, blah. I got an email today from Netflix, and it is coming to Netflix on May third. So, oh, that is you're, very soon. If you are listening to this, that means it came out like four days ago, and you should, oh yeah, like hit pause, go watch that. Okay, no, no, you can
1: you can finish uh, our <laughs> episode if you want, and then go watch it.
0: I mean, I'm fully going to admit I'm not Zac Efron, and I'm sorry, dude.
1: I'll speak for yourself because I am.
0: <laughs> you are. So, anyway, but I was anticipating that would be out a lot later this year. So, that was a, you know, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, when surprise. I think the later
1: this year, I think like
0: October. I know. I thought it was going to be more of a fall release, but I'm just really interested to see, see how they did this. I know there's been a lot of criticism for this movie already. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know it, they say it glorifies Ted Bundy i disagree because i think it's making the point of he was very likable he was like everyone else he was attractive and it made him not suspect to the horrific crimes that he was doing And it's through the the lens of his longtime girlfriend um, that Mm. I forgot her name in this moment. But yeah, so super excited about that. That's my current news because I checked my email. And I don't always open those Netflix emails. where They're like, we have a movie you're going to like. But I clicked on this one and I'm glad I did. Because they will have a movie I'm going to like. They have a lot of movies I like.
1: You'll have to tell me about it because let's be real, I'm not going to watch it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm just being honest, but okay. Well, with all of that, I want to jump into our topic.
0: Yes. And this is one, if you guys remember, we actually collaborated on uh, because last week was a draw. Yes. All right. So,
1: without further ado. We often find ourselves going to the doctor when we aren't feeling our best. Whether you're being wheeled into the emergency room after a car accident or sitting in the waiting room with a cough that just won't go away, our goal is the same. We want to feel better. Most of the time we leave these doctors without a second thought, we feel better. Or at the very least, we know we're on our way to feeling better. In rare cases, though, we don't. Now, I'm not talking about doctors making mistakes or doctors who were unable to help in time i'm talking about doctors who take their medical knowledge and use it as a weapon doctors who turn the hippocratic oath on its head doctors who kill bum, bum, bum,
0: oh my God! <laughs> yes thank you um, i just have to say that was beautiful
1: <laughs> thank you i know
0: um, so yes, our but topic yes,
1: Doctors Who Kill and is
0: Doctors Who Kill, and this is we have talked about doing this topic for a while, but I was hesitant to do it too quickly because this was right as Dr. Death, um, a Wandering podcast. Which, oh, by yeah. the way, if you have not listened to that, it's fucking crazy and you have to listen to it. But they had just come out with Dr. Death. And it was talking about Christopher Dunch, who, here where I now live in Dallas, was a doctor who was injuring and killing a lot of patients. And it wasn't, well, okay, whether it's deliberate or not, very much the whole question of the case, but convicting a doctor for murder is a big fucking deal because it's not he wasn't doing what the angels of death, you know, uh who often use poison mm-hmm. to either assist in death or like Janine Jones who was murdering babies by poison. It that wasn't was that
1: my case in episode 3.
0: It was. It wasn't that Dr. Dunch was operating on people, but he had no fucking clue what he was doing because he had somehow gotten through med school. Like he had all the degrees. He had the creds and he had the that money
1: horrifying
0: but he literally didn't know what he was doing and it just took years for the the system to actually catch him but anyway he was convicted i think he got life not 100 sure that just happened like a month or so ago but if you haven't listened to dr death please do yourself a favor also listen to that After you listen to us. So knowing that we've briefly, you know, introduced this in a few different ways, like you did the Janine Jones, I'm going to be really interested to see what case you picked. And I know Mm -hmm. I I very much went a different angle on this one. Okay. Now I want to tell you about the wine that I picked for this episode. Do it. Okay. It's one that you would absolutely hate. I'm just going to put it out there. So it's a Chardonnay? It's absolutely a Chardonnay. And you know what it's called? Buttercup.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, But it looks like a bottle of olive oil.
0: So this is the 2017 Buttercup Chardonnay, and it is a barrel fermented chard from California, uh, which is all my favorite things to hear. All of Tyler's nightmarish things to hear.
1: Wow! Not that's what I hear in my nightmares. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's your nightmare is you're at a fancy dinner and they only have an oak chard.
1: I mean, I would still drink it.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you would cry.
1: Would I? I I, I think I think I my think nightmare you would did be last
0: time I picked I, well, an oaky shard. No,
1: I think my nightmare would be at a fancy dinner and the only thing they have to drink is like glasses of Jaeger. That would be my nightmare. <laughs>
0: <laughs> God. Okay, that sounds awful. Um so this Chardonnay is it's a classically made one, like I said, in oak barrels. It has very mouth filling richness and buttery toastiness that comes from the barrel.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's really good with fresh seafood, grilled poultry, and light pastas. And it says it has a taste that's just like butter. B-U-T-T-A-H. Okay. And I'm just, I thought it was really cute. There's There are two different Chardonnays that I've been wanting to try. There's this one, the buttercup, and then there's one just called Butter um, I opted Ew. for buttercup. It was a couple dollars cheaper. It's twelve dollars instead of uh fourteen for just butter. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to open this up and see what it tastes like. It is not a screw top. And oh, me. so we
1: actually get a pop.
0: Yeah, let me get into this. Yeah. There you go. So let's see, let's look at the color of this. It is oh, it's a nice yellow. Look at this tie. Look how yellow it is.
1: That is very dehydrated Boy Scout camper yellow.
0: <laughs> oh. Okay,
1: well, don't drink it yet. Let me open mine. I know
0: it just—it smells so good.
1: Well, what mine, did you pick? Mine is the ninety-nine vines Cabernet Sauvignon, and turns out it was real hard to get information on this wine because oh, it really? is. Well, it is from Lodi, California, and it's owned by the Scotto Sellers group which they do a bunch of other wines and this one is no longer on their website so I'm pretty sure it's discontinued oh, so you so can't was...
0: get this anymore Yeah this I mean you can still get bottle. it in
1: stores now but in a year probably not but um so this one is a nice and juicy very well structured cab and its flavors are ripe dark fruit with some heft. And it balances nicely with a very easy drinking acidity. I'm excited. This one is a screw top. It has very tamed tannins and smooth flavors. And it's enjoyed with meat and burgers.
0: You know, I will say the heftiness you spoke of sounds like that would be right up my alley. So how weird is it? I mean, not that you would drink this white wine, but I picked a white and you picked a red.
1: I know. But um, mine is a screw top, and it was, like, $9.
0: Nice. I'm loving that label. Oh,
1: same. That it's was like, why I got it.
0: It's, like, so ornate and, and really pretty. It's actually similar. I mean, look how ornate this label is on mine, on the buttercup.
1: Oh, yeah. They have, like, French pre-art deco style going on.
0: I really like it. I'll Anyways. Um, well.
1: But, yeah, mine is a very dark, dark purple. Um i'm excited okay
0: so this one um buttercup definitely smells of butter and like almost Pups. like icing ew it's it's like that it's like buttercream icing kind of but not necessarily with the sweetness let me give it so a it taste. smells like
1: butter and dairy also i guess we're not cheersing
0: oh <laughs> so sorry i'm so excited go ahead take your taste <laughs> no, okay sorry no cheers. i guess see, cheers here we go <laughs> I'm so sorry, I'm just really excited- I was smelled it, and it was all I could think of. Oh my gosh, so it's very smooth. I very much have like a nice, sweet buttery honey. this you know what this tastes like? It's kind of like a biscuit with butter and honey. I like it.
1: I'm giving her a look. Is it butter and cream and Cream and honey, and honey and cream, and <laughs> butter.
0: <laughs> what was that wine?
1: I don't even remember, but it wasn't honey and cream. It was just honey. No, I think it was, oh, it was my Pinot Grigio. I had a couple episodes ago.
0: Well, I will say, if you like an oak Chardonnay, you would very much enjoy this. It is heavy on the tongue. It is absolutely full bodied, as the description promised. Very rich and mouth filling for sure.
1: So mine's a little, a little bit of a tease. It hits your tongue, and immediately you get that mouth-watering tannin and, like, that heaviness, that heft. And you get some of, like, the the dark fruit that, again, that heft. And then it you swallow, and it just kind of ends. So oh, I'm so thinking,
0: there's no linger.
1: Not really. I Granted, it is a red. It's a cab. And I have not let it breathe yet. So I definitely need to. But interesting. Because I would have expected kind of the opposite one that hits your tongue and is kind of you know lighter smoother and then builds this one kind of reverses that i don't know it's interesting i like it i'm gonna drink the whole bottle
0: yeah well but let
1: unexpected it,
0: let it breathe a little bit i'd be interested to see if it tastes a little bit differently later mm-hmm. okay well i'm gonna say it this time we've got the wine we've discussed the topic So now I'm going to jump into my murder.
1: Do it. I dare you.
0: Okay. So like I said, I went a little bit of a different angle with this. So I did the angel of death, Joseph Mangala. And his name may sound familiar. It may not. You're going to get a big hint here in just a second when I tell you what my sources were. So I used all that's interesting, Ranker, And the Holocaust Encyclopedia.
1: Okay, so we're just going there, aren't we?
0: Yeah, I had a real depressing night last night reading all of this. So, I'm going to now share it with you. Generally, when you ask someone about the worst crime in their living memory, a lot of the times the Holocaust is what's going to come up. Yeah. If you ask them to name the worst crime scene of the Holocaust, Auschwitz is generally their natural answer. Yeah, If you ask a person who knew that camp, what the worst part of that camp was, there was a killing center at Birkenau that was the worst. And then if you asked a survivor of Birkenau to name the most terrifying murderer in the whole complex, and they're pretty much going to tell you that was Dr. Joseph Mangala.
1: Oh my god. Um, um so, so literally
0: strap in your seatbelts. This is super fucked up. And you literally may want to go straight for some whiskey to listen to this.
1: Yeah. Because, I am literally uh...
0: going to warn you guys right now. Um, If there are any triggers that the Holocaust brings to to you, I would skip this portion of the episode and just fast forward to Tyler's because it's, it, it literally goes into the absolute darkest moments of the Holocaust, because this man was at the center of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is um, this is actually a case I'm very familiar with. I can't think of any one darker human than Dr. Mengele.
0: Yeah. So, Joseph Mengele was born on March 16th, 1911, in Gunzburg, near Ulm, Germany. Uh, he was very popular, witty, rich, and his dad ran a very successful business in, in Germany, and by 1935, he had already earned a PhD in physical anthropology from the University of Munich, and he also oh. had a doctoral degree in genetic medicine. In January 1937, he became the assistant of Dr. Otmar von Ferscher at the Institute of Hereditary Biology and Racial Hygiene in Frankfurt.
1: That sounds like eugenics. Uh, it, yes. Racial hygiene?
0: <laughs> Come on. That's exactly what it is. He's a doctor of eugenics. Dr. von Ferscher was a leading scientific figure who was widely known for his research with twins, and he was a fully indoctrinated Nazi eugenicist, like you were just saying. Oh, fuck. So, National Socialism always held that individuals were the product of their hereditary. So, von Ferscher was one of those Nazi-aligned scientists whose work was legitimizing this assertion. His work revolved around the hereditary influences on congenial defects such as the cleft palate. So it's seeing, you know, what things are being passed down to where the cleft palate is a result. For his dissertation to- topic, Mangala was writing about racial influences on the formation of the lower jaw. So you can see why he fit in well with being the assistant of von Furscher. Mengele joined the Nazi party also in 1937. And at this time, he's 26 years old and he received another medical degree in 1938 from his work that he did with von ferscher And that same year, he joined the SS, which is the Schutzstaffel, but we'll call it the SS because I'm not going to try to say that word again. Fair. Yeah. So, Mangala was drafted in the army in June 1940, and he subsequently volunteered for the medical service of the Waffen SS. And between the fall of France and the invasion of the Soviet Union, Mangala practiced eugenics in Poland by evaluating Polish nationals for potential Germanization or race-based citizenship. And so, like, obviously this is, again, very fitting for the Nazi party. He then served as a medical officer for the SS division Viking, which is kind of like Viking, but with a W and he saw action on the Eastern front. He was a very decorated soldier and uh, he even got an award one time for dragging wounded men out of a burning tank. And he was repeatedly commended for his dedication to the service. So he began to work at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, um, the KWI for anthropology, human genetics, and eugenics. And he was once again working with Dr. Von firscher in April, 1943, he received a promotion to the rank of SS captain and this promotion sor- shortly preceded Mangala's transfer to Auschwitz, which happened in April of 1943, which for him was absolutely the assignment of a lifetime. You know, this is showing that his work was great. He was very successful in the army, and he he's put on this amazing position at Auschwitz as a captain, which, as we know, Auschwitz was the largest Nazi concentration camp, and it opened in 1940- And it did eventually evolve into a complex of more than 40 concentration camps.
1: Jesus.
0: When Mengele got to Auschwitz, it was during a very transitional period. The camp had long been the site of forced labor and POW internment. But the winter of 1942 to 1943... The camp started ramping up its killing machine, which was centered on the Bitterkanal subcamp. Yeah. And this was where Mangala was the medical officer. During Mangala's time at Auschwitz, he was not the only physician there. Uh, it was believed that he was like the highest ranking physician, but he wasn't. So that distinction actually belonged to another SS captain, Dr. Eduard Wirth. Um, who was responsible for, like, all the medical matters and decisions for the entire camp. In November of 1943, Mengele undertook a new position as chief camp physician of Auschwitz II, which was Birkenau, and mm-hmm. he was still under Wurz's jurisdiction, because, again, Verse is over, like, everyone. Later, there are some accounts that are given by both survivors and guards that described Mengele as this very enthusiastic member of the staff who... Volunteered for extra duty all the time. He managed operations that were technically above his pay grade, but he seemed to be almost everywhere. He's just wanting to help out. Help out. Yeah. Not really. He obviously has some yeah. motives. Mengele's medical facility at Auschwitz was perhaps the most horrifying place that the Holocaust produced. And there were about 30 other physicians that were serving at Auschwitz while Mangala was assigned to the camp. So he's the worst of a group of really bad people yeah at the camp every doctor was required to take part in selection Um, and selection was you would divide the incoming shipments of people between those who would do work and those who would be immediately taken to the gas chambers and so many of the doctors found this work really depressing but mangala loved it he was always willing to take other doctors' shifts on the arrival ramp. Like, no problem. Ugh. You don't want to do that? I got it. This and a lot of other reasons is why Mangle is known as the Angel of Death, or sometimes the White Angel. Because yeah. he was just very cold and cruel when he was on the ramp. You know, he would even have just a slight flick of the wrist, pointing which direction. Whether the person was going to work, or be guessed, Work. Ruby Guest. And it was just a quick response, no real thought, no real words, just flick of the wrist. He is associated more closely with this selection duty than any other medical officer at Auschwitz. Although, a lot of accounts say that he he didn't do it any more than his colleagues, but he was just the most well-known because of the way, like, his whole attitude about it.
1: Well, just how cold and...
0: He was enjoying it. All the
1: fucking Nazis were cold and monsters
0: they were but it was like he was sick and fucking enjoying what he was doing
1: he didn't try to take the humanization out of it he enjoyed that his victims were human
0: yeah so in a normal day of work for mangala aside from being the selection officer he managed an infirmary where the sick were executed assisted other german doctors with their work supervised inmate medical staff, and conducted his own research among the thousands of inmates he personally selected for this human experiment program he started and managed. So these experiments that he devised were so fucked up, it was beyond belief. He was motivated and energized by this bottomless pool of condemned humans as he saw them that were placed at his disposal he continued the work that he had started in Frankfurt by studying the influence of heredity on various physical traits. Yeah, Manga believed that in studying twins, he could gain some insight into understanding how one goes about physically removing genetic makeup. And identical twins were very useful for this kind of genetic research because they have identical genes. So you could do one thing to one and not to the other. And see how things change and mm-hmm. what's being manipulated and altered, and yeah. so you know any of the differences between them that must be the result of environmental factors. So he was on the hunt for twins. He oftentimes would appear off duty in the selection area whenever different train loads of prisoners arrived, and he was there looking for twins. yeah, he, he began to collect them for his medical research. So, Mengele had begun being interested in twins because of his mentor, Von Ferscher. And Von Ferscher was famous for experimenting with identical twins and fraternal twins in order to trace genetic origins of various diseases. And mm-hmm. so, during the 30s, twin research was seen as an ideal tool in weighing the factors of human heredity and environment, again, because of the genes being identical you could isolate the changes. Mengele and his mentor had performed a number of legitimate research protocols using twins as test subjects throughout the thirties. And so now that Mengele is at Auschwitz with full license to maim and kill his subjects, he performed a broad range of agonizing and often lethal experiments with Jewish and Roma twins. And God. most of them were children. Mengele assembled hundreds of pairs of twins and sometimes spent hours measuring various parts of their bodies and taking very careful notes. He would often inject one twin with a mysterious substance and monitor the illness that ensued. He would then apply painful clamps to children's limbs, induce gangrene, inject dye into their eyes, which he then took out their eyes and shipped them back to a pathology lab in Germany, and would give them spinal taps. When one of his test subjects died, the twin would immediately be killed with an injection of chloroform to the heart, and then both of them would be dissected for comparison. Mangala killed 14 pairs of twins this way and spent sleepless nights performing different autopsies on all of his victims, analyzing their bodies and the differences, and just all for his fucking research. Not only was he obsessed with twins, but also any type of medical deformity- uh, he, you know, he felt that these would aid him in his further understanding. And so when he would be at the pits, you know, seeing people come in, he was keeping his eye out for people who had deformities that maybe he wanted to explore. So Megalo was obsessed with a family from Transylvania, Ovitzis. There were 10 children and seven of them were dwarves. So you can see why he had this immediate interest. Yeah, He allowed them to keep their clothes and their their hair while he siphoned their blood, removed their teeth, and placed them under intense psychological scrutiny. However, you know, even though their time at the camp was extremely torturous, the family survived their time in the camp.
1: Holy shit, all of them? Mm
0: Mm-hmm, yes. So for all of his methodical work habits, Megala could be extremely impulsive, which, duh, like someone who is doing the things that he's doing obviously is a very impulsive person. And again, this is, you know, when he's doing the selection, it's this choice between work and death. And he would just quickly pick people. And so there, there was one incident where a middle-aged woman had been selected for work and refused to be separated from from her 14 year old daughter who had been assigned death. And so there was a guard that tries to like pry the two apart He ends up getting a nasty scratch on his face and he, you know, had to go back. So Mangala steps in to resolve the situation by shooting the girl and her mom. And then he cut short the selection and sent everyone to the gas chamber because of the incident that happened. So the fuck? Extremely impulsive. On another occasion, the Birkenau doctors were arguing over a boy that they had all grown fond of. um, And they were arguing whether or not he had tuberculosis so mangala leaves the room and then comes back about an hour or two later and apologizes for the argument and admits that he'd been wrong during the time he was gone he went and found the boy shot him and dissected him for signs of tuberculosis which he didn't find and that's why he admitted he was wrong because the boy didn't have tuberculosis
1: what the fuck but he
0: fucking killed him anyway mangala ends up getting another promotion at auschwitz And this time he's in a management position and he was responsible for the public health measures at the camp. In addition to his own research that he's been carrying out this whole time. Again, this impulsive streak that he had is roaring its angry eyes and face at the tens of thousands of inmates that are at Auschwitz. Typhus broke out at one point in time among the women's barracks and Mengele solved the problem in his characteristic way he ordered one block of 600 women gassed and their barracks fumigated then he moved to the next block fumigated their barracks then it was repeated in each women's block until all of them were clean and ready for a new shipment of workers so he just gassed them all and he did the same thing a few months later when there was an outbreak of scarlet fever so Megala had a wide variety of other interests it wasn't just twins it wasn't just deformities one of these was a fascination with heterochromia, which was a mm-hmm. condition in which the irises of an individual eyes were different colors.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you'll often see someone with like one hazel eye and one blue eye yeah. or something like that.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's one of those things that it's not common, but it's not uncommon. Like I've seen mm-hmm. this multiple times and also in animals. I see it a lot in animals.
1: Oh, yeah, especially like huskies.
0: Yeah, or even cats, you know, one blue eye, Mm -hmm. one um, like golden or brown eye. So throughout his stay at Auschwitz, Mengele collected the eyes of the victims he murdered. And part of this was to furnish some research materials for a friend that he was working with uh, looking into like different eye pigmentations. Mangala himself also conducted several experiments in an attempt to unlock this secret of artificially changing eye color. Which, like, fucking Mangala, just wear contacts, okay? You don't need to change the color of someone's eyes. Yeah. Like, actually change them. He also very zealously documented some of the camp inmates and their progression with the disease called Noma. It was a type of gangrene that would destroy the mucous membrane of the mouth and other tissues. Oh, fuck. To study this, he sawed off the heads of infected prisoners and sent the preserved samples to Germany for study. So Mengele firmly endorsed Nazi racial theory and engaged in a wide spectrum of experiments which aimed to illustrate the lack of resistance among the Jews and the Romas to various diseases, you know, trying to demonstrate that their races can't can't fight these and they're more likely to get them this isn't fucking true like obviously he's trying to prove something that's not real he also attempted to demonstrate the degeneration of jewish and roma blood through the documentation of physical oddities and the collection and harvesting of tissue samples and body parts multiple of his test subjects died as a result of this experimentation or yeah. they were murdered in order to facilitate post-mortem examination. So just like yeah. the twins, the twin of the twin that would die, he would kill them for autopsy and experiments.
1: I just cannot understand...
0: How anyone would ever That think mindset. This is okay.
1: Like, yeah.
0: The fact that this is real and this happened...
1: And it happened not that long ago.
0: No, there are still very much people who are alive... Yeah. That are survivors of the Holocaust. And obviously families that have members who are survivors Mm -hmm. of the Holocaust. And it is one of the absolute darkest times in our world's history. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of dark times when we like really go back. But especially when it comes to present day, this is one of the darkest. And absolutely something I never ever, ever want to see anything like this again. Yeah. So... I'm going to jump back in and just have a little bit left. Yeah. Like most of the doctors and scientists it, at Auschwitz, Mengele had the aid of trained medical professionals that were among the prison population. And he would have them help him perform these grisly or mundane tasks, whatever he needed carried out on the autopsies of all his dead victims. Much of the knowledge that we have of Mengele's activities at Auschwitz come from Dr. Mikolos Naizli, who was a prisoner physician that helped Mengele under duress, of course. Mikolos later published his experiences initially in Hungarian in 1946. This book was later translated to English in 1960, and it was called Auschwitz, a doctor's eyewitness account. And a lot of this grisly, horrific information comes from him. Mengele was hoping that all of this research that he had done in Auschwitz could produce his habilitation, which was going to be his second postdoctoral dissertation that was required for admission to a university facility as a professor in German-speaking lands. Mm -hmm. So instead, in January of 1945, the Soviet army is advancing through Western Poland and Mengele fled Auschwitz to avoid capture. He's like, nope. I'm out of here. So in the immediate post-war period, Mengele ended up in U.S. custody. However, the United States was unaware of Mengele's name and they didn't know that he was already on a list for wanted war criminals and they just quickly released him. So from the summer of 1945 until the spring of 1949, using different fake papers and alias names, he worked as a farmhand near Rosenheim, Bavaria, And his then very prosperous family aided his immigration to South America and he settled in Argentina.
1: Of course he fucking did.
0: All of his crimes had been well documented before the International Military Tribunal and other post-war courts had been created. And West German authorities issued a warrant for his arrest in 1959. So this is a long while after he'd already escaped.
1: 14 years after and
0: they sent out a request for his extradition in 1960 around the same time he was very alarmed by the capture of Adolf Eichmann in Buenos Aires and so he moved to Paraguay and then to Brazil and again using a series of different aliases sometimes he would throw in his own name just for shits and giggles he managed to avoid capture for four decades Although, it does help that pretty much no one was looking for him, and that the governments of Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, they were all pretty sympathetic to the escaping Nazi refugees who were coming there. Mengele spent his last years near San Paulo, so his health was declining, and Mengele actually suffered a stroke and drowned while he was swimming at a vacation resort in Brazil on February 7th, 1979. And he was buried in a suburb of São Paulo under the fictive name Wolfgang Gerhard was the name that he had been going by, and he was known as yeah and then in nineteen eighty five German police, working on some evidence that they had recently confiscated from a manga family friend in Gunzburg, mm-hmm. located Mangala's grave and exhumed his corpse. The Brazilian forensic experts then positively identified his remains as Joseph Mangala. And in 1992, DNA evidence confirmed that conclusion. Mangala had eluded his captors for 34 years. And he was never actually captured. He just died. So he never faced any type of punishment for his brutal and absolutely horrific crimes. And he is literally one of the... I don't even have intense enough words. He is just such a nightmarish monster. Like he is like the demon of dreams. Yeah. And um, obviously the angel of death.
1: Yeah. I don't I don't really have any words.
0: Well, and you know, there's no there's no real victim total because we'll never know. There's no, no way we'll ever I mean, know the amount the... of damage and destruction and horror he actually caused. Um, You know, we have a few accounts of what actually happened. And I, unfortunately, am sure that only scratches the surface of the insanely fucked up things that he was doing. Yeah. So such a very, very dark, dark man. And I need wine.
1: Yeah. I mean, over a million people walked through the gates of Auschwitz and never walked out. So how many in that million did he have a hand in? Exactly. 200,000? 300? I mean, how many people did he send to the gas chambers and torture and do these experiments on and murder? Also, if any y'all looking to read, I know it's a very happy topic, but um, if y'all looking to read more on the Holocaust and get the perspective of some of the victims of it, obviously, Diary of a Young Girl, Diary of Anne Frank. Is oh, a absolutely. great perspective of people who are hiding from the Nazis. But Night by Elie Wiesel is a heart wrenching. I mean, it's it's an account of his time with uh, his father being taken to Auschwitz, and it's a it's beautiful book. To read. But it's a horror. I mean, it, all of this is it's the fucking Holocaust. You can't bring up but
0: anything about world war Two or the holocaust that's not a horror
1: yeah but you know well, I, I
0: think one of the most jarring photos that i've ever seen and it's not some of the ones where you can see you know the the pits filled with bodies and whatnot it's the pile of glasses yeah have you seen that photo where it's just yeah. a pile of all the glasses of the victims and it's yeah. like it's it's so it's it's so many glasses like you can't even comprehend that number and knowing that those were all people
1: mm-hmm. it's just and not everyone wears glasses that's not even everyone. it's not even and everyone
0: it, it's not even close to everyone but it's just a way to visualize it in a different yeah. way yeah the amount of victims that there were
1: well six million people died in the holocaust which at least that's the number we have
0: i'm sure it's it could more.
1: very likely be more but 6 million people that's the population of the country of el salvador or the country of libya it's bigger than denmark i mean 6 million people that's all of new york city if you took out like brooklyn yeah so let's
0: let's go
1: i i, I can't even I, I don't even say what i don't even want to say my topic my case is lighter but like, We don't do let, light topics. Let's, light doesn't we don't. exist. It's all we don't. darkness
0: in this podcast.
1: Darkness and wine. Maybe that should be our new name. Yeah. God. Dark and darker. Um, I'm just going to get into mine. Because it's also very depressing in a very different way. Well,
0: this topic is very depressing in lots yeah. of different ways.
1: Yeah. So my case is the Memorial Medical Center deaths. And the sources I used were the New York Times and Wikipedia. There is also a book, if you want to dive in more, that's really good. It's called Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital. And it was going to be the basis of Season 3 of American Crime Story. They're not doing it They have it anymore? scrapped it.
0: Why? No, it,
1: they announced in February they scrapped it. Do
0: you know why? So...
1: No, they didn't say they're very secretive about it, but so they won't be doing this case. But that was how I first heard about this case, and I've been fascinated with it ever since. And this is one that early, early on in our podcast, we talked about doing Doctors Who Kill, and this case was the one I wanted to do. Like, this, I was like, i have this case i want to do the topic doctors who kill
0: i think we literally may have this on our scratch sheet when we plan the podcast or if not on that it was literally in one of our very first conversations because i remember yeah. you telling me you wanted to do this one well,
1: I reme- and i know yeah. nothing
0: about it so and i still don't because i've never looked it up because i knew you would always find a way to do it oh
1: absolutely absolutely But the book is Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital by Sherry Fink. Um, If y'all want to dive more into this, and I highly, highly suggest you do. We aren't sponsored, so I'm not going to tell you to go find that book at the largest repository of audiobooks uh, owned by an Amazon company. (laughs) But what I will tell you is that you can go to your local library, if you have a library card or sign up for a library card... And you can rent audiobooks.
0: Yes, you guys. For free.
1: Seriously? Also.
0: That's the best thing to do. I always mm -hmm. check out audiobooks.
1: Oh, yeah. If you've ever been like, damn, I really want, you know, to read this, but I listen to it. You know, I prefer podcasts or it's just easier for me to, like, listen to books or whatever. But I don't want to pay for them through this Amazon company, go to your local library many libraries have on their websites now where you can download audiobooks you know, for free th- or you can rent them for a time period for free and listen to them yeah and I'm not telling you to do this or not but you know you can always like download them and save them or if you get them in CD copy like save them not telling you to do that that's pirating I would never do that and I <laughs> never have. But I'm just telling you, the Stephen King book, Cell, is like 47 songs long. All I'm gonna say.
0: Well, I will say, that is one of the amazing things we learned from our mom growing up, is to go to the library. Check out books. Check out audiobooks. Guys, do you realize that all of the books that you are wanting to read they're available for free sometimes you just have to wait like if it's a really popular book like yes you're going to be on a wait list but put your name on the wait list read something else while you wait Mm -hmm. then get that book like it's just the library i feel like is so underutilized by people as as a resource for like books for pleasure it's more seen (laughs) as a place to go for research while yes obviously it's that there's a shit ton of books but they also have everything else you want to read too Oh, yeah. I I love the library.
1: My office downtown is not far from the Austin Public Library. And it's the new one that's like
0: amazing.
1: It's gorgeous. (laughs) The building has won awards for its architecture. And I'm telling you, it's well deserved. Go to y'all's local library, check it out because. If y'all... You know, if you're into true crime podcasts, you're probably going to be into some of these true crime audiobooks, especially when you can find ones that are written by either the victims who lived through this or... I mean, y'all, I'm telling you, library it the fuck up.
0: Do it. And there are so many amazing books out there. Like, we've talked about... I've talked about Mindhunter. There's Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me. Um... Yeah, definitely get on the book train, guys. Do it.
1: hmm So my case takes place in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the United States, at Memorial Medical Center. So Memorial Medical Center is this hospital that's situated in one of the low points in the bowl that is New Orleans, and it's about three miles southwest of the city's famous French Quarter, and it's about three feet below sea level. This hospital sprawled across this very New Orleans neighborhood of double-shotgun homes. And it was several blocks from a housing project, but also just a short walk to the gorgeous mansions of Uptown. And it served a very diverse clientele. When it was built in 1926, it was known for decades as Southern Baptist. Mm -hmm. But after being purchased by Tenet Healthcare in 1995… It was renamed to Memorial Medical Center. For years, the hospital served as a shelter when hurricanes would threaten the city. Employees would bring their families and pets as well as food, and it was just kind of the place to, to hold out know. a storm.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was the safe place. And We've talked way too new... many times about safe places that are not safe.
1: We have. And New Orleans is no stranger to hurricanes. Of course. Hurricane Betsy and Hurricane Camille in the middle of the 20th century, and then Hurricane Katrina as we remember most recently. Uh So this was a place that was often used to hold out in storms. And by the time Hurricane Katrina began hitting New Orleans on the early hours of Monday, August 29th, 2005, some 2,000 people were hunkered down in the hospital including more than 200 patients and 600 hospital workers. Wow. When the storm hit, patients were screaming as windows shattered and the hospital groaned and shook violently. At 4.55 a.m., the supply of city power to the hospital failed. Televisions in patients' rooms flicked off, but the generators of the hospital had already come back to life and were humming, There Was Power. Granted, this system was only designed to power emergency lights, certain critical equipment, and just a handful of outlets on each floor. Yeah. So, the air conditioning shut down. Oh, God. Basically, it was there to power essential, essential things. things.
0: Which, in a hospital, yes, no AC sucks, but there are so many more essential mm-hmm. electronics that need power. Like, life support.
1: By that night the time things had started to clear down and Katrina had moved into northern Louisiana and northern Mississippi Memorial had sustained damage but it remained functional and the hospital seemed to once again have weathered one more storm on September 11th of that year 45 bodies were recovered from Memorial Medical Center about 5 of whom had died before the disaster What 40 people Wait died in this hospital but to, During Katrina.
0: We don't know how. All the things you just told me didn't sound like they were dying people.
1: No, it did not. Out of an estimated 215 bodies that were found in nursing homes and hospitals in New Orleans, Memorial by far had the largest number.
0: Yeah. That's, um, there's, yep, that's, smells funny.
1: And so now we're going to kind of back up into the heart of Katrina at this hospital and the players involved, and why these 40 people died, and how. So Dr. Anna Powell, she is this 49-year-old head and neck cancer surgeon, and her strong work ethic had earned her the respect from doctors and nurses. She was this very well-liked person who is very good at her job and very well-respected. The morning after Katrina hit, Tuesday, August 30th, a nurse called to Powell, "'Look outside.'" And what she saw from the window was hard to believe. She saw water gushing up from the sewer grates. Other staff members gaped at this dark pool of water rimmed with garbage that was crawling up the street towards the hospital. Oh. And remember, the hospital's below sea level.
0: Did you say how many stories it was?
1: It's eight stories. It's eight
0: stories? Okay.
1: Senior administrators quickly... Grasp the danger that these advancing waters posed, and they counseled El Rene Go, who is the chief executive there at Memorial, to close the hospital. Yeah, because like a lot of American hospitals that are in flood zones, Memorial's main power switches and its electricity boxes in
0: the basement
1: are just a few feet above ground level. Oh
0: my God!
1: This water comes in and hits them; power's gone. Yeah. So, also, this electric got, like, system is vulnerable. It is. I just, Grey's Anatomy vibes? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Literally,
0: Grey's Anatomy flashbacks is what just happened, which is why I said the basement.
1: Can't confirm this. Would strongly imagine that that episode,
0: uh, was parts influenced of that, by this? are
1: influenced. Yeah.
0: Fuck. That is nope.
1: So, Susan Moldrick who is this tall, no-nonsense, 54-year-old nursing director. She was the emergency incident commander designated for Katrina, and she was in charge of directing hospital operations during the crisis. She was a longtime chairwoman of the hospital's emergency preparedness committee, and she had helped draft the hospital's emergency plan. But this 246-page document gave no guidance for dealing with a complete power failure or for how to evacuate the hospital if the streets are flooded.
0: Which you would think if they are below sea level, they might think those things through
1: Well, yes, but also before this, New Orleans had not really ever had a direct hit from a major hurricane. And even Katrina did not make a direct hit on New Orleans. It was a couple dozen miles. It made landfall a couple dozen miles east. Yeah. Which I I should go back. To give y'all perspective on Hurricane Katrina, if you're not familiar with it, Hurricane Katrina was one of the worst natural disasters to hit the United States in modern history. Yeah. Over 1,800 people died. I believe it was around 1,300 of them in New Orleans, 300 or so in Mississippi, and a bunch throughout the United States. Hurricane Katrina made landfall in Louisiana as a Category 3, which, on the scale of hurricanes, it goes 1 through 5. So, you're, so you may think, oh, not as bad. Well, the damage from most hurricanes doesn't really matter with the wind speed, and the wind speed is what determines the category. Right. I say that. A Category 5 is going to do generally more damage to structures Yeah. than a Category 3. But the important factor is, is before making Landfall, Hurricane Katrina was a Category 5. And though it made Landfall as a Category 3, it still had a lot of the strength in the Storm Surge, which is Basically a giant wave of water that just comes on shore with the storm. Imagine something like a tsunami.
0: Yeah, so say it's like a tsunami.
1: And Hurricane Katrina's storm surge was one of the highest ever recorded in the U.S. It was over 30 feet in places. And you have to go for miles around the Gulf Coast to find anywhere that's 30 feet above sea level and the city of New Orleans, most of it is below sea level. Yeah. So while New Orleans is not on the coast, it is located in between the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain, both of which have outlets to the coast. So what happened when Hurricane Katrina moved in is the winds in New Orleans were bad, but not that bad. Mm-hmm. It basically, you know, it was spared a major direct hit. And it was like, okay. Okay, we got this. When the storm surge hit Lake Pontchartrain, it overwhelmed the cities. I believe levees also broke along the Mississippi River. Yeah. And so, the waves aren't coming from the sea. The sea is dozens and dozens of miles away. They're pouring in from the lake, which in places there's a 30-foot wall of water pouring into the city. And even in places not near the levees that broke, water's rising.
0: Yeah. Because it's just water it, everywhere.
1: It was, I think the number, I don't have it in front of me, but I think the number was about 80% of New Orleans was underwater. And. Oh my
0: God.
1: New Orleans is a major US city. Yeah. Before this, it had, I believe, around 400,000 people in it. Today, I think it hovers around 300,000 because wow. of how many people had to leave and couldn't come back, how many people didn't come back and how many people had nothing to come back to so where there's little you, background
0: where do you go when you have nothing to come back to like how there
1: are people today it's been 14 years there are people today that are still living in emergency housing from after katrina because they don't have anything their homes are now foundations with weeds growing out of them so the city of new orleans and the entire gulf coast was absolutely devastated by Hurricane Katrina and is still very much reeling from the impact today 14 years later
0: well when you think about how much of an impact Katrina had 14 years isn't that long like that Mm -hmm. that's not enough time to completely rebuild and recuperate that type of disaster
1: Hurricane Katrina was also the costliest natural disaster to ever hit the United States yeah and it cost upwards of 125 billion dollars in damage.
0: And that's why 14 years later there's still recovery efforts. Yeah. And like a quick sidebar, I have one experience in my life with hurricanes and it's, you know, us growing up in Oklahoma. We were oh, more yeah. used to we're more used to tornadoes and like that was our thing and the thing we understood.
1: Yeah. We would We would occasionally get like the remnants of a tropical storm, but at the point it hit us, it was like,
0: it's raining. It was just like a lot of rain. Well, so when I lived in New York was when Hurricane Sandy hit and I was below 50th Street. I was actually living on 11th in the East Village. And so the storm hit and it was really bad, but I just, you know, I went grocery shopping before, which that was, dear God, it was literally like, number one. Going to the grocery store in New York is already a clusterfuck. Add in buying supplies for Sandy. It was a fucking nightmare. But you had to do it. But you got wine. I mean, like, duh. Because I was a kid and I was naive. I also got water. But so I go into my apartment and this is when I was living with a Craigslist roommate that I didn't really know. So like, way to be in a really awkward situation. We, of course, lost power very quickly into the storm. And we lit candles. It was whatever. We had like our one like real conversation the entire six months I lived with her. And she invited me to go uptown with her to stay with her and like one of her friends. Granted, I did not fucking know this person. And again, super naive. Didn't really think it was going to be that bad. So I was like, no, I'm good. Thank you so much for the invite. So I wake up the next morning and still no power. And I'm like, huh, wonder when it's going to come back. And I decided to go out to see what's happening and my cell phone was also dying and I needed to charge it. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go to like a corner store or something. I just need to find an outlet. No big deal. Go to Starbucks. Done this before. I go outside and this is when I'm starting to realize, because again, like I said, no power. I can't watch the news. My phone's dying. So I'm not looking on social. I didn't know what to think. Because I go out and there's like trees blown over, there's crosswalk signs blown over. And I actually think at this point my phone may have died because I called mama from a payphone. Like by the luck of God, I had change. It was so rare that I don't even know how it happened. But I got to a payphone, I called mama and she saw the New York area code and knew to answer it. And it was me. And we had a conversation. I was like, I'm fine. My phone's dead. Like if you just let people know I'm safe. My phone's dead i'm I'm trying to go find somewhere where I can charge it.
1: I'll have you know just to interrupt for just a sec. My perspective during this, I very much follow the weather, <laughs> yeah, uh the NOAA and National Hurricane Center websites are ones that are bookmarked for me uh because meteorology and all that very much fascinates me. So I very much knew what this meant was watching the news every step of the way, knowing Brittany is in Lower Manhattan. Yep. So I'm I'm watching it, you know, I see all the shit going on, not able to get a hold of Brittany, and I'm panicking. So I'm like, hey, hey. Also, I don't want to, like, call Mama and, and be like, Mama, her. so this is what's going on. Brittany's probably drowned somewhere. Like, what have you heard? So I am just like quietly panicking to me and my roommates of like "Eh, okay I haven't heard from Brittany I'll just... just check her social again okay she doesn't post anything let me yeah well maybe she just posts something on Facebook now so yeah that was my experience while you're doing this
0: I know so I actually think it was a combination of dead phone and also no service because the towers were down too yeah so I called mama and I was like I've got to get somewhere with power that's when I learned there's not power until you get to 50th. I'm on 11th. I am a broke fucking college student. So I walked 40 blocks to charge God. my phone.
1: Well, also, the subways were lakes.
0: They were, da- yeah, you couldn't ride they, they the subways. You would have to take a taxi. And also, to be completely honest, it probably would have taken me longer to get a taxi than just walk 40 blocks. Oh, so,
1: God. 40 blocks Mm -hmm.
0: so i i get up there i go into a hotel lobby this was also where i learned that the trees lining the streets in manhattan have outlets because i did stand at one of those outlets for a little bit it's for the lights for like holiday times but so i go into a hotel lobby and it's like i mean everyone's doing the same thing so they're not like kicking us out or anything that was when i got On Facebook and I I did a status because I was like I don't have time to contact people I had already called mama and given her her duty to contact and I was like I'll post something to say hey I'm safe I'm out of power don't know what the fuck's gonna happen Mm -hmm. cool and a friend that I vaguely knew that also happened to live in New York saw my post and she lived on like 58th or something and so I ended up staying with her for a week because power was out for a week and the thing is while we talk about this and it's like oh my god that sounds like such a pain in the ass this is nothing like i was fine i just didn't have power for Mm -hmm. a week and like i knew someone that i could stay with and so i was beyond fortunate in this situation and there are so many people when natural disasters like this happen that their situation is very different you know but anyway this has been a long tangent about hurricanes. Let's get back into your case.
1: Okay. So Susan Muldrick, she is basically the person in charge of keeping the hospital fucking going during the crisis. Yeah. During this time, Memorial's chief of medical staff was away. So Richard Dykman, who is the medical department chairman, was the one in charge of organizing the physicians. At 12:28 p.m., a Memorial administrator typed help with four exclamation points in all caps and emailed colleagues oh at other tenant hospitals outside of New Orleans warning them that Memorial needs to evacuate more than 180 patients.
0: Oh my god.
1: Around the same time, Dykman met with many of the roughly two dozen doctors that were there at Memorial and several nurse managers in this stifling nurse training room on the fourth floor that became the hospital's command center. The conversation there turned into how do we empty this hospital? We have people who are here because they have to be here, because they're hooked up to medical shit. How do we evacuate? And the doctors quickly agreed that the babies in the neonatal intensive care unit, pregnant mothers and critically ill adult ICU patients would all be at great risk from the heat Their priority. with no air conditioning. And they should get first priority. Absolutely. And then Dykeman broached an idea that wasn't anywhere in the disaster plan, and suggested that all patients who've signed a DNR or a do not resuscitate should go last. So okay, that's if, fucked if up, though. It is, but you have a hundred and eighty people. Who do you who who goes no, last? No, no, no.
0: I get it. I know, but it's fucked up.
1: Basically, my entire case is fucked up. I see where you're coming from, but that's fucked up, for the most part, I will say. Um, Y'all know the topic, but if y'all don't know, a DNR, or a do not resuscitate, it's basically what you sign when you are in the hospital, and you don't want extraordinary measures. If you don't want CPR performed, or um, all the drugs pumped into you or to be kept on a ventilator or plugged into machines. You can sign a DNR, and if the time comes when you are dying, they're not going to resuscitate you and they'll let you die. You know, the idea that he had being, these are people who don't want extraordinary measures and have said so.
0: Yeah, Is but...
1: evacuation an extraordinary measure kind of thing? Like...
0: Okay, I am absolutely going to go the flip side really quick, because it's like... If something happens to those people because of the disaster, does yeah. that count? Or or is it something along the lines of literally say, I don't know, they're pushing them down the hallway and the gust of wind breaks a window and glass shards go in their face. Does that count? Like, yeah. this is such... Well, it's- and, and I... Wow, it really is a lot of... I get it, but what yeah. the fuck? This is obviously a very unbroached topic (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm sure for the person having to make these decisions but
1: yeah holy shit and i mean it all boils down to these people said no extraordinary measures is evacuation an extraordinary measure and i i don't know but there was also an important party that was missing from this conversation Life care. For years, this company known as Life Care Hospitals of New Orleans had been leasing the seventh floor of Memorial, and they operated kind of a hospital within a hospital for critically ill or injured patients that were in need of 24 hour care and intensive therapy over a long time. And life care was known to rehabilitate patients that were on ventilators until they could breathe. And its goal was to assist patients until they improved enough to return home or to return to nursing facilities. And it's important to know it's not a hospice. It's not a place where people went to be comfortable before they died. It's for people who are getting better and rehabilitating. And many of the 52 patients at Life Care were bedbound or required electric ventilators to breathe. And they would be at significant risk if the hospital lost power.
0: They would, absolutely.
1: And life care was not present in this conversation. So
0: are they just like on the seventh floor, like trying to fucking figure it out at this moment?
1: Yeah. In the afternoon, helicopters from the Coast Guard and private ambulance companies began landing on this long unused helipad they had on top of the eight-story parking garage next to the hospital. Also remember... This hospital was built in the 20s. It doesn't have a helipad on the roof. Oh.
0: The helipad
1: is on the parking garage next to the hospital. Yeah. Surrounded by flood water.
0: Wait, so how do they get to them?
1: It's a fucking lot. So a crew of doctors, nurses, and family members had to carry memorial patients down flights of stairs wheel them to the hospital wing where the last working elevator brought them to the second floor. Then oh my God. each patient you know
0: how much faith was put into that elevator not breaking?
1: That one elevator. Yeah. Then each patient was maneuvered onto a stretcher and passed through a roughly three foot by three foot or one meter by one meter opening in the machine room wall that was a shortcut to the parking garage. Oh my god. Patients were then placed in the back of a pickup truck, which would drive up to the top of the garage, then carried up two flights of metal steps to the helipad.
0: And this was every patient?
1: Every single patient that needed to be evacuated had to go through that.
0: Were there patients that were not stable enough to go through something like that?
1: There were a lot of patients who weren't stable enough. So they chose the people that needed to be immediately evacuated and could be. And it was dark when the last of them had finally gone. Later that night, the Coast Guard offered to evacuate more, but those in charge at Memorial had to decline because the helipad had very minimal lighting, no guardrail, and also the staff needed to rest. They had been going nonstop since before the hurricane. They needed to rest. And it, it it wouldn't be safe to land helicopters there at night. Right. In this evacuation process this day, Memorial shaved its patient count from 187 to about 130. But on the seventh floor, all 52 life care patients remained, including seven that were on ventilators.
0: Oh my god. Why did they not talk to them?
1: They were talking to them now. I don't know if the issue was we can't bring them down from the seventh floor. Yeah. Like in in the time needed or we have babies and mom's about to have babies that we need to get out of here first.
0: Again, that order of priority that is so Mm -hmm. don't even know how to decide that.
1: So at about 2 a.m. on Wednesday, August 31st. Nearly 48 hours after Hurricane Katrina made landfall in New Orleans, Memorial's backup generators sputtered and stopped.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Ewing Cook, who was one of the hospital's most senior physicians, described the sudden silence as the sickest sound of his life. In life care on the 7th floor, critically ill patients began to suffer the consequences. Alarm bells were clanging as life support monitors and ventilators switched onto their battery reserves and started dying because their batteries aren't that long they're not meant to survive a complete power outage
0: no no
1: so after about half an hour the batteries failed and the regular hiss of the mechanical breaths stopped a memorial nurse appeared and announced that the coast guard could evacuate some critical patients again middle of the night but she's like okay you know what fuck it we're doing it It's dangerous as shit, but the power is now out completely. The power's out
0: completely, so it's risk, risk, no matter what.
1: So volunteers began carrying some of the life care patients who relied on ventilators down five flights of stairs in the dark. Oh, God. A life care nurse navigated the staircase alongside an 80-year-old man on a stretcher, manually squeezing air into his lungs with an Ambu bag. Which is one of those, you know, one, two... (sighs) One, two,
0: bags that you
1: see. yeah. As he waited for evacuation on the second floor, she was bagging him for nearly an hour when finally a physician stopped by the stretcher and told her that there's no oxygen for the patient and he's too far gone. What? So she hugged him and stroked his hair as he died. He wasn't getting enough oxygen. He was dying and there wasn't time to get him evacuated. They didn't have spare oxygen for him. He was going to die.
0: So she just stopped and let him die,
1: and she made sure to be there for him while he died. Dr. Anna Powell was begging another patient on the second floor to relieve a nurse whose hands were growing tired because I mean it's one two for hours until you can get them on a ventilator, yeah, you have to. that's the only thing breathing for them, yeah. But that patient, along with two other life care patients who relied on ventilators, died early that morning. But the others were evacuated by helicopter and made it.
0: The number of ethical implications that could be coming out of this are scaring the shit out of me. Because it's like every turn, every decision, every movement could be ripped apart by ethics.
1: Mm -hmm. But it's also... How much do your standard of ethics, which is made in a, in a perfect bubble of, course. of these are the ethical decisions that should be made, how much does that stand up in a disaster situation? Yeah. At this point, the hospital chaplain opened a double door with stained glass windows down the hallway, and the staff began wheeling bodies into the chapel to be the makeshift morgue, because where else are you going to put it? There are patients and evacuees. Everywhere. Remember, there's 2,000 people here taking shelter at this hospital. Some of them patients, oh some of them God, evacuees, I
0: family members,
1: doctors. I
0: forgot there were just people there for shelter. Yeah.
1: A bunch of these volunteers helping caring people or evacuees. Are people who were who had left their homes because this was the safe place to go. Family members who you know, dad's in this hospital caught over there. I'm going to help th- get this person into the hospital because I can help. Yeah. And because, you know, the nurse doing this, she needs to be somewhere else saving lives. I can carry this person. I mean... Oh it, my god. Horrifying. Horrifying situation. So the sun rises, and along with it, the New Orleans temperature, which was already in the mid-90s. The hospital's stifling... The walls are sweating, water had stopped flowing from the taps, toilets were backed up, and the stench of sewage mixed with the odor of hundreds of unwashed bodies, lingered the hospital. And inside the building, temperatures reached a hundred and ten degrees Fahrenheit oh, God. or forty four degrees Celsius, which is unbearable.
0: Absolutely. That's unbearable outside and when you're inside thinking you're in an area where that wouldn't be happening
1: so that morning doctors and nurses decided that more than a hundred remaining memorial and life care patients should be brought downstairs and divided into three groups to help speed up evacuation those that were in fairly good health and could sit up or walk would be categorized as one and prioritized for the evacuation because they could kind of help themselves more or less Those that were sicker and would need more assistance were categorized as twos, and the final group of patients were assigned threes and were slated to be evacuated last. This group included those that doctors judged to be very ill, and also, as doctors had agreed the day before, those with DNR orders. Because you know you can't save everyone, but you can save those that you can save. Right. So... Although there's no doctor that's officially in charge of categorizing all these patients, Dr. Powell was energetic and jumped into the center of action. She was like, we're going to get shit done. And throughout the morning, makeshift teams of medical staff and family members carried many of the remaining patients to the second floor lobby, where Powell was ready to receive them. And in the dim light, nurses opened up each chart, read the diagnosis, and Powell and the nurses assigned a category to each patient. A nurse would write one, two, or three on a sheet of paper with a pen and tape it to the clothing of the patient's chest.
0: Wait, were these patients, were any of them awake?
1: I assume if they were ones, they were. Twos, maybe. You have to, this is your tag. So in triage, which is what this is, this is a triage situation, where you assign best, medium, worst to people... Oftentimes, it's done in disaster situations. Uh, Sometimes there are tags used. Green, yellow, red, and black for those that have already died. Oftentimes, you'll see it in field disasters, such as plane crashes or military events, where you need to tag and go. They can walk. They can get away. They're walking wounded. Green. They're probably going to be able to survive their injuries. Maybe they're not as great. They're yellow.
0: Wow. They're
1: dying. They're red. They're already dead. They're black. Because there are so many people and so few resources. This is triage. So many of the ones were taken to the emergency room ramp where boats were waiting. The twos were generally placed among the corridor that was leading to the hole in the machine room that had the shortcut to the helipad. Yeah. And the threes were moved to a corner in the second floor lobby. Patients awaiting evacuation would continue to be cared for, you know, their diapers would be changed, they'd be fanned and given sips of water they could drink, but most medical interventions like IVs and oxygen were limited, because they they didn't have any more, they were running out. By Wednesday afternoon, many of the patients had been evacuated, but a few, and especially those with DNR orders, hadn't.
0: So, can emergency services not get to the hospital?
1: No one. So during Katrina, no one could get into the city. The bridges leading into the city had been wiped out. There was flooding everywhere. So basically, it was helicopter, and there's not not that many helicopters. No. There's also hundreds of thousands of people within the city that need to be rescued and need to be evacuated. During all of this, the crisis at the Superdome was happening, where over 20,000 people were there waiting to be rescued, running out of food, running out of water, no power. I mean, this the city was in chaos. So Janine Burgess, she's this, this 79-year-old woman with advanced uterine cancer and kidney failure was one of the patients who was still at the hospital. She was being treated for comfort only and had been sedated to the point that she was unconscious with morphine. And she was so weighed down by the fluid from her diseases that she weighed 350 pounds. (gasps) So she was not easy to move. And she's dying. She's there to not have to be in pain while dying. And Dr. Ewan Cook said that given how exhausted everyone was and how much this woman weighed, it would be impossible to drag her down six flights of stairs. And even in the best of circumstances, she probably had a day or so to live. And honestly, the four nurses taking care of her were needed elsewhere. So to him, the drug that had been dripping into her IVs for days was the answer. Morphine. Morphine is this powerful narcotic that's given for pain and frequently used in hospitals as the, like, the pain number medicine. But it can also slow breathing. Higher doses given all at once can lead to death. So being comatose and on painkillers, she wasn't uncomfortable. She was okay. She wasn't feeling anything. But to cook the worst thing that he could imagine would be for the drugs to wear off and for her to wake up and find herself in this ravaged condition as she's being moved. And so he asked one of Burgess's nurses, do you mind just increasing the morphine and giving her enough till she goes?
0: So was the morphine not also running out and could they have not used that morphine that they gave her extra on someone who didn't have any at all?
1: So morphine and painkiller stocks we're good. Oh. at the hospital. Okay. And also the large the higher dose that you have to give is not a lot. I don't I don't know medically what it is, but if you're getting 10 cc's or 10 milliliters an hour, 20 milliliters all at once could probably kill you. I don't again, I don't I'm not a medical professional, so I don't know the exact amounts, yeah. but it's it's something like that. Yeah. So, Cook scribbled pronounced dead at on her chart and left the time blank for when she actually died for them to be able to fill it out and he signed the note he then walked back downstairs believing he had done the right thing for her because now she wasn't gonna die in agony she was gonna go peacefully dr cook went to the staging area on the second floor where Dr. Powell and two other doctors were directing care and saw that cots and stretchers were covering every inch of the floor space. And despite how miserable these patients looked, Cook would later say that he felt there was no way in this crowded room to do what he had been thinking about. (gasps) And he would later be quoted as saying, we didn't do it because we had too many witnesses. And that's the honest-to-god truth.
0: Wait, but what were they thinking about?
1: He was thinking that what he'd done to Mrs. Burgess was going to be the solution for a lot of these people that were probably going to die through the next day in his mind. But he's not going to do that. But he doesn't know.
0: No, he doesn't know. And also the fact that he was like, I think this is what we would have done, but there were too many witnesses. Is that not a big signal Mm -hmm. of like, then maybe it's not the right thing to do? Because it comes across not as a, because it will be really difficult for all the family members to have to witness. It comes across as a, because I'm going to get fucking caught.
1: Yeah. So that night on the second floor, doctors, cook and pal both exhausted, discussed their Category 3 patients, including nine that had never been able to bring down from the seventh floor yeah. because they were too unstable. Yeah. Powell was worried that they wouldn't be able to get them out, and Cook hadn't been up to the seventh floor since Katrina hit, but in his mind, the life care patients were chronically death-bound at the best of times, and they would be horribly affected by the heat because, again, it's 110 degrees in this hospital yeah. cook also could not imagine how the exhausted memorial staff would be able to carry these patients down five flights of stairs before the end of the day nobody from the outside had arrived yet to help them evacuate people mm-hmm. you know they'd be able to help get them out but no one had arrived to be there at the hospital to help them move patients and if there were other ways to evacuate these patients he he didn't see them Cook told Pau how to administer a combination of morphine and benzodiazepine sedative. The effect was that patients would go to sleep and die. Yeah. And he believed that Dr. Powell understood that he was telling her how to achieve this. He viewed this as a way to ease the patients out of a terrible situation. Because they're either going to die up there of heat exhaustion, or from not being able to breathe, or they're going to be able to just go to sleep. Teresa Mendez, who is a life care nurse executive, she had worked overnight on the first floor, and after daybreak, she heard the sound of helicopters and watched the evacuation line begin to move. She returned at about 8 or 9 a.m. to the seventh floor and walked along the corridor. The patients she saw looked bad. Several of them were unconscious, frothing at the mouth, and breathing in an irregular way that often means they're about to die. While two patients had died on the seventh floor, on Life Care's floor that Wednesday, the others had lived through the night, and only a few of them had been given small doses of morphine or the sedative lorazepam for comfort.
0: Yeah.
1: But they had made it through the yeah. night. Mendez heard that Pow was looking for her. They sat down in an office with an open window. Powell looked distraught as she told her that the Life Care patients probably were not going to survive. And Mendez agreed. They probably weren't going to. And Mendez watched Pau struggle with what she was saying as she said, the decision has been made to administer lethal doses. Pow told Mendez that she and other Memorial staff members were assuming responsibility for the patients on the seventh floor and that the life care nursing staff wasn't involved and they should leave. This was a decision that she was gonna make, and she didn't want to have to make the decision for
0: for everyone. The
1: rest of the medical staff. Yeah. Mendez assumed that the hospital was under martial law, which was not the case. And so Mendez is assuming that Paus coming to her, telling her this, because the military has arrived and they're telling them we can't get these people out; they're not going to survive. Administer lethal doses.
0: But that wasn't the case. It was just someone's decision
1: mendez left to dismiss her employees because she feared that if not the the authorities would come and force them all downstairs to not have to be present for what was about to happen powell brought numerous vials of morphine to the seventh floor and as they worked their way down the seventh floor hallway Christy Johnson, who was LifeCare's Director of Physical Medicine, held some of the patient's hands and said a prayer as Powell or a memorial nurse gave injections. Powell went room to room on the seventh floor and then moved on to many of the Category 3 patients, not all of whom were close to death.
0: Oh my god.
1: So one patient in particular, Emmett Everett, he was alert and he'd been in the hospital awaiting surgery to relieve a chronic bowel obstruction, which is a condition that's not acutely life-threatening. That morning, he'd fed himself breakfast, and he asked the staff, are we ready to rock and roll? And one of his nurses even would later tell investigators that he'd said, Cindy, don't let them leave me behind. Powell was alleged to have administered a lethal cocktail of drugs to Everett with the intent of ending his life. Everett was a paraplegic and he weighed about 380 pounds or 170 kilograms. And for these reasons, according to staff that had been present in the discussion, Pow didn't think that they could reasonably assist him in evacuation.
0: So, because he was too fat?
1: Because, yeah, because they could not get him down. She killed him.
0: So, that this is the moment. Where I feel like things are taking yeah. a turn. Where I'm like, no, there is yeah. no part of me that agrees with that decision. You get extra mm-hmm. fucking help, and you try because that's someone's life.
1: You fucking sit him on his ass, and you scoot him step by step down the stairs. Yep. You
0: fucking down six flights. It you fucking out. do it.
1: So on Sunday, September 11th, 2005, 13 days after the storm hit. Mortuary workers recovered 45 decomposing bodies from the Memorial Medical Center. The next day, the Louisiana Attorney General, Charles Foti Jr., opened investigations into the hospital and nursing home deaths during Hurricane Katrina. Toxicology tests were performed on 41 bodies, 23 of which tested positive for one or both morphine or the fast-acting sedative Medazolum. although one thing to note a few of these patients had been prescribed morphine for pain yeah but not all of them in the following weeks it was reported that staff had discussed euthanizing patients and some of these reports went further with bryant king who is an internist at memorial telling cnn that he believed the discussion of euthanasia was more than talk Investigators believed that up to two dozen deaths might have been homicides, but stated that they had difficulty acquiring the medical records needed to document the patient's conditions because there was a fucking hurricane. Yeah, And investigators believed that of the two dozen possible cases, they initially had the strongest case in the deaths of four patients who had died on the hospital's seventh floor. On July 17th, 2006... Dr. Powell was arrested and charged with four counts of second degree murder in connection with the deaths of four life care patients. And nurses Lori Bundo and Sherry Landry were arrested and charged as well, wow. but charges were dropped in exchange for their testimony. State Attorney General Charles Foti announced the arrest the next day and stated this is not euthanasia. This is plain and simple homicide. And the arrest warrant stated that Powell and the nurses intentionally killed Emmett Everett Sr., who is 61, Hollis Alford, who is 66, Aretha Watson, who is 89, and Rose Savoy, who is 90. It's
0: almost like they went from patients who it was understanding and made sense to... And not that this was their thought process, but almost to this like, okay, who else could we almost swing to be... This is what we have to do.
1: Who would be more convenient to die? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so it, it very much went from a gray area to, like, black.
1: Yeah. In March of 2007, a state grand jury was sworn in to consider the memorial case. Unlike a typical grand jury, this one dealt with just one case, and it functioned as an investigation instead of a review of evidence. The grand jury did not hear from select experts, some witnesses who had been present, or the Department of Justice investigator who'd spent a year on the case and amassed 50,000 pages of evidence. The two nurses who had been arrested with Pau testified in her defense after being compelled to testify in return for being not charged themselves. Yes. And after several months, the grand jury concluded its work By declining to indict any of the suspects on any of the charges. The state of Louisiana apologized to Dr. Powell and paid her legal fees.
0: So they determined that the whole thing was unjust.
1: They determined that there was not enough evidence to convict on murder. And the state was like, I mean, I guess they were just like, we can understand it. We can understand what you had to go through, the trauma of it and having to make these difficult decisions. Well, and there were civil cases that came afterwards with Tenet Health Care and Life Care paying yeah. undisclosed amounts of money to victims and victims' families. Well, But in the end, there were never charges brought up.
0: Right. And this is... It goes along the lines of what I was saying at the beginning. How difficult it is to actually convince anyone mm-hmm. that a doctor murdered someone. Oh yeah. And and not that this was. Oh, a,
1: absolutely.
0: This is different than the Christopher Dunch that I was talking about at the beginning, but it's it's along the same lines of the way the system is. That is not something that's built in. Yeah. And no, and there you're... are so many ethical and just situational and. So many questions surrounding this that mm-hmm. it is not black and white. It is mostly gray. No. And while well, I still say I feel like those murders were murders, obviously mm-hmm. I'm not on a jury. I'm not on that jury. And I'm not, I don't mm-hmm. have all the information. So I can't really make that decision.
1: Well, and as much as we can talk about the facts of what happened in New Orleans during Katrina, there is no perspective that we can put. Well, and to be put in this situation where you don't know how many you can save, you don't know if help is coming, and you don't know when, it took days for the National Guard, for anyone to get to New Orleans after Katrina had cleared. It's it's a clusterfuck of ethical and moral dilemmas.
0: Absolutely. And on that, do you want to jump into post-mortem?
1: Let's do it. Your case was just fucked up. He's a fucking monster. And the fact that he got to live out his fucking years in Argentina, uh, Paraguay, and Brazil is super fucked up. It
0: is. And I will say it is why I'm picking my case. Because my guy was 100%. a monster. 100%. In your case, Powell was just trying to make the right decisions. And doing yeah. what she could mine he was a motherfucking monster
1: he was a motherfucking monster a horrible person and i mean absolutely yours is the worst case well and it's mine
0: in mine even when like you were saying you take the the fact that it did happen so many years ago in the 40s and medical advances weren't there but you, you still had fucking morals you know Absolutely. You still had things that absolutely. you don't do to people, and he was this racist motherfucker who thought that all of these people were his playthings and that he could do whatever he wanted to them because it was for his yeah. tests. It was for fucking yeah. research. Monster, no,
1: absolutely, fucking Because all the f bombs. Because is... this guy
0: is awful, and it's the goddamn Holocaust.
1: Yeah, there was no good in him. No, doing what he, he was did. Pure and evil. I
0: truly, evil. I
1: truly believe that there was good in Dr. Powell in what like in what her intentions were in what she thought she was doing. I agree. And I don't agree with what she did. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, um I will let you pick our topic and so, hey, if you guys enjoyed quotes in the air, don't know what right word to choose <laughs> yeah. is
1: I know, we always say enjoyed, but that's not the right word. If y'all... If you
0: were intrigued by this episode and you'd like to hear more... (laughs) Intrigued
1: is a good one. If
0: you want to hear more, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. Leave a review. Leave us some stars. Obviously, we would love a five-star review. And this is going to make it a lot easier for our podcast to be found in the rankings. And we greatly appreciate Mm -hmm. it and share it with your friends. We have had so many new listeners because of friend recommendations and it's just so amazing to see. So if you enjoy this, tell people about it.
1: Yes. Also make sure to like, and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We also have our website. Make sure to check it out, but follow us. You'll be able to every Wednesday we do a feature post about what our wine is for that uh week's well, episode. So now we do you get two to see posts. the bottle. Oh yes, now we do too, because we have two wine bottles every and episode. every episode. So you get to see the wine. We also post interesting stuff about our cases, different serial killers, sometimes memes if we're feeling frisky.
0: All the memes. All the
1: fun stuff. But with that, I have wine left and I'm going to, I feel like we ended the last episode the same way, but God, I just, I need to sit and drink my wine for a second. I just. Same. This was a lot. This episode was a lot.
0: It was a lot. Um, I totally agree. It was a lot. <laughs> so. So,
1: um, but thank you guys so much. We love y'all. We are so thankful for all of you who tune in and listen to us. And y'all just, I don't know. I I can't explain how incredible y'all are and how incredible this journey has been yes. we're at episode 52 next week is our one year anniversary episode
0: yep it is and
1: oh my god i, I can't I cannot believe explain it the whirlwind that this year has been yes. with this podcast i
0: literally life
1: changed. i remember
0: literally you
1: know yeah in in a year yes. Which is so short. A year ago, I was more or less the exact same person I am now. I mean, like, you know, with some things happen, some things changes, whatever. But how much this podcast has grown and impacted us is, it's, it's incredible. And it is literally, it is all thanks to y'all. Yes.
0: So we're going to get real mushy next week. But for now, (laughs) ooh,
1: expect some tears that they will be edited out. But but expect them regardless that
0: they were there. Um, Yeah. But with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO.
1: Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.